This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink, and I'm here with Jason McDowell. Uh, my co-hosts are on the road, but Jason, who is the... Um, uh, probably the dean of podcasters in this genre, uh, has interviewed me. He's interviewed Ted. I think you may have even had Roni on your show. Uh, I have not yet had Roni. We'll, we'll have to do way. something about that. And uh, uh, But uh, almost everybody uh, in the industry that uh, we all hold dear has been on Jason's show. He has a great radio voice, so will be um, more than an adequate replacement for my missing colleagues. Uh, so anyway, good morning, Jason. I'll let you introduce yourself because you're a lot more than a podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Sean. I'm really excited to be here. I really enjoy this show, and I appreciate the opportunity to come and share a little bit of a more live perspective and reaction maybe to some of the things that are going on. As you noted, I do get to host a podcast focused on this industry. I really enjoy doing the longer form sorts of interviews where we go much more deeply into the backgrounds of each of the guests and talking not just about what they're doing right now, but also kind of the things that led up to where they are now. And it's been really one of the great joys that I've had in this industry. Uh, but beyond that perspective, I also get to work you know, across the other couple of different touch points within the industry. I work as an executive in the hardware side of this industry, trying to make some of the core underlying elements work and be better over time so we can have more of these consumer-grade smart glasses one day. I would also play it as, a, as an investor and advisor across a number of startups in this industry as well. I personally have a deep passion for, uh, for computer vision, for AI, for AR. I've always been Super excited about how these things will eventually come together. And I think maybe 2024 is a year where we'll see more of an integration of those ideas. So you're sitting in as a co-host, but we actually do have a real guest. You're not a guest. You are a co-host today. And uh, our guest is Shelly Palmer, um, probably uh, one of the leading consultants uh, to tech companies like Samsung and Meta. He's also got clients like Nike, Ford, and the NHL. Uh, he gives them strategic advice, particularly around tech. Uh, he's a professor at the Newhouse School. Um, Shelley is a Renaissance man who knows a lot about a lot. One question I'd like to ask him is, how is it possible for one person to know this much? Um, I had the same feeling. We were lucky enough to have Jay Samet on the show. Uh, he was the vice chairman at Accenture for a long time, having run Universal Music and lots of other companies. So uh, it's a privilege to have Shelly, and I, I want to find out how he became Shelly Palmer, uh, friend to uh, CEOs. So let's get to the news. Uh, something I didn't call, cover in the column released yesterday was Meta's presser with some of the leading journalists in tech, uh, including Shelley and uh, and Alex Heath of the, of the Verge. They have purchased several hundred thousand uh, NVIDIA graphics processors and are seeking to insinuate not just AI, but AGI, 
general intelligence into all of their products. Of course, everybody is seeing the good in this, and it is very exciting when a company like Meta makes this kind of investment, as it has been with Apple and um, you know Microsoft making its large bets. So it's certainly got to be great for Meta. But then I was thinking, geez, AI and social media, I mean, we see what algorithms have done, and they're pretty smart. I don't know if we could, you know, again, the, what the definition of AI has become like the definition of the metaverse. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but it knows you, and it throws up content it thinks you will like. Now, if you add artificial intelligence to that, I mean, do we get to a point where our privacy is invaded? You know, one on the plus side, I really love this idea that uh, there might be a computer assistant, a computer driven AGI that can fill in maybe some holes in the social experience, the social fabric of some humans to their betterment. We think about um, some sort of you know, depression or other sorts of things where additional touch points in somebody's life might be really beneficial and the way they interact with a brand might be improved. But this idea that uh, we are smart enough as humans to deliver AGI in this context, the way that a company like Meta has the information about us and and, uh, and the ability to impact so many humans at the same time really concerns me. And it's not just, privacy is definitely an element of it, but it's how do you use that personal information to the betterment or the detriment of an individual or a group of people, I find to be mostly terrifying. Uh, so I, I would love to see us baby step, you know, our way into this sort of technology and find smaller ways to test and, and refine before we go and expose it to 4 billion people simultaneously. I'm sure it's Facebook, you know, it's got a, or Meta has a very nice path to this, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think there is this notion in AGI that you have your personal co-pilot. It's private to you, but it knows all about you. And we were talking about this for years in the context of AR, Right? Could that co-pilot be part of your AR? And Meta seems like the company that is most likely to pull that off. Uh, you know, they've been trying and they've been thinking a lot about what AR glasses all day, every day, see-through glasses are going to do. Uh, and I think that may be one of them. And they want to offer, you know, they want to embody them as avatars. They want to add personality to them. Uh, consistent with their media brand. Yeah, I um, this notion, if we constrain this idea of AGI to just being a personal assistant, whose sole responsibility is to understand maybe the wealth of information that exists on the internet, but also understand you and your context in that moment, and be able to deliver just to you the relevant bits of content, bits of information, bits of guidance, and they're truly able to constrain that information about you to that experience, I think that would be amazing. Like for me, that's the the ultimate pinnacle of of what AR could be in a sort of assistive uh, technology that helps interact with the real world. Well, we're going to get to some questions about applications for AR as we discuss our friends at Magic Leap, who have raised, well, they've hired a new CEO, Ross Rosenberg, uh, who by all accounts is a super nice guy. Uh, he replaces Peggy Johnson, who resigned just after three years with the company, which I thought was a rather short tenure for her to declare victory. When she joined the company, it got a flood of money, I think around $500 million to help her pivot uh, the much slimmer Magic Leap. Now the new CEO comes on 
And he also gets half a billion dollars to help Magic Leap achieve its goals. But the Magic Leap 2 has been around now for three years also. It sort of coincided with, with Peggy's arrival, if not its release, at least. Uh, uh, well, its release publicized then, if not the distribution uh, being available. But the fact that they need another half a billion dollars, and it's coming from the Saudis that own half the company, is not good news in my eyes. It's not something to be touted. I think it's a sign of failure. Uh, and it, it indicates that they're not getting the kind of traction that they should have as a 10-year-old company. And it suggests, that, you know, we see the HoloLens is struggling. It doesn't matter that much to Microsoft. They've moved on, right? Microsoft, companies like uh, Disney, Apple, they have infinite at-bats, right? They can fail spectacularly in XR. But magically, that's it. That's all they have, right? And they're just fouling the ball off. And with you, to stretch this baseball metaphor about as far as you can, uh, they're fouling off the ball, but, you know, it's they're, uh, you know, one ball and two strikes. I mean, it is not a good situation to be in. I was just looking at some of the numbers. I think since Roni left, they have declared a billion and a half dollars of equity, additional equity. And then the money last year, that 450 million last year, I think was mostly debt. So well, I think they, characterize, together, they characterize it as debt, but it's coming from your biggest shareholders. Yeah, yeah. So altogether, it's about $2 billion. $2 billion on top of, on top of all the money that they had raised and spent when Roni was CEO. So initially $2 billion, that's $500 million a year that they've been burning through. And I, uh, I, if you think about at-bats, apparently it's not just the Apples and the Microsofts and the Googles of the world that get infinite at-bats, it's also Magic Leap. Except that they're just one product that they're trying to pitch or one evolution of a product they're trying to pitch. And we've seen them pivot. Now it's consumer, now it's prosumer, now it's enterprise. Now it's, you know, who knows, medical, it seems to be much more of a focus for them. Maybe they found a little bit of traction, a little bit of interest for the product in that particular environment. I am jealous. Like at some level, I'm like jealous. Like I would love to have a sugar daddy who's throwing $500 million every year at me. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of CEOs around this industry right now who are looking at themselves thinking, man, if I had $500 million, if I had $5 million, if I had the $10 million a week that Magic Leap is burning through, there's a lot that I could innovate. There's a lot that I could showcase. There's a lot that I could do. But, um, you know, Magic Leap has a plan, clearly, at least there's uh, a plan for the Yeah, studies. I mean, why not? Ross wants his at-bat. He thinks he has a plan. They obviously like his plan. Um, I, But I don't know why they're keeping Magic Leap alive. I honestly think after this much time, if they don't have traction with actual customers, what are they expecting to happen that's different, right? You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I have a hypothesis I'm going to throw out there. They're expecting the market to shift when Apple introduces their product, that there'll be more general awareness, there'll be more willingness once again to experiment, and there'll be a resurgence, a regenerance, uh, regeneration of enthusiasm for the market, including on the enterprise side in 2024 as a result of Apple. If I had to throw a dart at the board. Yeah, I thought about that, but I think the Apple impact is being overstated. <clears throat> so 
sure it has an impact, but honestly, are enterprise customers really thinking about Apple? It's a niche product. They're going to put out 250,000 of them, mostly to developers and rich guys and people who bought the new. So I think that, um, uh, I think that they're, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. But, uh, if I were a betting man, uh, I don't think I would take magic leap at this point because, uh, it's just taking too long and it's too hard. We have a little company, but they're a public company, Vuzix, that just laid off a quarter of their workforce. Now, mind you, that's 100 people. So they laid off 25 people. But uh, they had to disclose it because they're a public company, albeit a small one. Uh, and I love Vuzix, by the way. I think among the uh, among the smaller XR companies that are focused on enterprise, I think they're one of the stronger ones. But honestly, I think there is no problem in business that is not solved by more revenue. And I think that is what Vuzix, I mean, they they you know say it's a efficiency and yada yada. And yeah, okay, but it's also not enough revenue. If there was enough revenue, they wouldn't do this. So I, I'm concerned. I mean, it just may be there as much as we like the use cases and understand the use cases, it, it may be that people who manage businesses don't think it's that big of a deal. And, uh, you know, I talked to the realware guys who also have a terrific uh, enterprise product. And, you know, they need to make, you know, sales in the tens of thousands for these to be real businesses. And the market is resisting that. So I think we have to look at what's going on with Magic Leap and say, is it Magic Leap or is it just the market for enterprise XR? I had a conversation recently on my podcast with Michael Hoffman, Hoff as, as many know him, and he has been playing around this enterprise AR use case set for a decade, both at Microsoft and outside of Microsoft, back and forth. And he offered an insight that on the enterprise side, the use cases are pretty well known. It's mostly about guided instruction or the sort of training that comes along with that, with that or problem resolution that comes along with that. Maybe it's data visualization. And he's, he notes that in the context of a proof of concept of a pilot within the company that they consistently prove to themselves, yeah, there's actually a nice productivity bump here, meaningful. The challenge that he has observed is that it's really difficult. It's been almost impossible in some cases, but really difficult at a minimum to go from that pilot to a scale deployment across the enterprise. And it has a lot to do with the extra requirements that go along with being enterprise grade. And there are many uh, around security and around device management and around all these other things. And there's still a lot of friction. Like in context, if you ask somebody to do it and you're kind of set it all up and make it as easy as possible for the end user to use it, is there value? Absolutely. But when it comes to deploying these things at scale and dealing with the fragility of the devices and all the rest, it is challenging to overcome the frictions, the, even the frictions beyond the enterprise grade you know, classification of utilizing these devices. So maybe it is that the use cases are there and that they're valuable enough, if only, if only the frictions were lower mm -hmm. to actually be able to use them every day throughout the course of a day for a particular employee. Well, I have confidence that that's going to happen. But as you know, success in technology is about timing. I mean, as much mm -hmm. as as much as anything, and I just wonder if these early companies that we admire their guts and their grit and their vision were just too early. And Magic Leap is an example of that. And maybe this money will get them there. And maybe Ross Rosenberg is the guy who will have the right timing. 
with that company. I certainly hope that's true. Uh, I am not rooting against Magic Leap, but uh, I think the signposts are there. And if they were a public company, they would be getting brutally hammered for taking this money. Uh, anyway, Shelly Palmer is here. And I know you didn't know who Shelly was before I introduced him to you. But let me tell you, this is a get. This is a get. So uh, let's bring Shelly on. Uh, we're going to learn something. So get ready. Shelly Palmer, as I live and breathe, what a privilege and a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Welcome. Wow. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Let me introduce uh, my co-host today, Jason McDowell. He's also the host of The AR Show, a long-running uh, podcast about the industry. Uh, Roni and Ted are traveling today. Now, we have three hosts to this show so that this would not happen. But fortunately, I've got one of the smartest guys in the industry who and who happens to also have the best radio voice. So hopefully, he'll be able to keep up with you Um in, in our short conversation. So, by the way, thank you for the invitation last week to the, uh, you know, Palmer Group private conference that you were running at the Fontainebleau, I guess, for your clients and prospective clients. I learned a ton. Oh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you about some of that. Uh, Linda Yaccarino, who gave a great, it's, you, you did a terrific sort of fireside chat interview with her. The only thing wrong with that interview, I think it was like 15 or 20 minutes. You probably got through half the questions you wanted to ask her. Um, but she did say one thing about you that I wrote down because it stuck with me. She said, CES is your Super Bowl. <laughs> Why did she say that? Well, we've been... <laughs> We, I've been leading tours at CES for senior leadership teams of our corporate clients since 1996. And we have, as you experienced, a full slate of events that happen during CES. Every year they change. We had, for years and years, our Innovation Series Summit. Uh, the last full one of those was just pre-COVID in, in 2020. We had, I don't know, roughly 1,500 people at the Encore Theater for the Innovation Series Summit in 2020. And it was wonderful. And then there was COVID and it's like, yeah. they canceled CES. Yes. And then they had a hybrid CES. And then they had, CES was, 23 was a, a little bit uh, uh, tamped down by the uh, Omicron variant resurgence in December of, of 22. Yes. So that was like, we had a lot of people not send their senior leaders because they didn't want them to get COVID. Uh, so this is the first real CES back you know, since COVID. So we decided, okay, let's go for it. We had a, what a wonderful slate of events, uh, different than usual. We, we had some meetups that were very private and Linda just knows that we've been doing an, an immense number of events at CES and the tours that we do there, I think are, are, are different from any other tours you can get at CES. There's plenty of free tours, uh, from agencies and from CES itself and, uh, some different kinds of things you can pay for. But my company always does a highly customized bespoke tour for senior leaders. It's usually the only time they're going to get on the floor. They're busy in meetings the rest of the time. And so what we do is we do uh, strategy sessions in advance to understand. And of course, most of these are our clients anyway. So we kind of know what their strategies are, what their what the business outcomes are they're hoping to achieve. And then we craft for each uh, leadership team that we're taking around, which is usually somewhere between 10 and 18 people um 
their experience that they're going to have there, what they want to see on the floor, what they're going to take away. So they they get to feel like they've been on the floor in, in a very real way. We make CS smaller for our mm -hmm. clients, not bigger, because it's a right. it's a monstrous show with right. millions of square feet of of things that you don't need to see and a few square feet of things you do. So you know we try to make it. So we skip skip the AI toilet from Kohler. <laughs> no, by the way, by the way, I'll tell you a funny story about that, Charlie. The very first time that we saw Kohler and Moen bring Alexa-compatible devices to the bathroom, specifically showers and toilets. And, you know, you would say, Alexa, flush the toilet for me. And uh, <laughs> how lazy can you? Oh, you had Alexa on in the background. I love that. By the way, <laughs> thank you. That actually was my... But anyway, <laughs> what would normally happen in that case is that it would do that, uh, not that sound, but it <laughs> would actually cause the Moen or the Kohler toilet to flush. And people laughed about it and whooped it up and yucked it up just like we did now. So why would you need that? Let me tell you why you need it. If you've been in an accident or you are some uh, other way impaired where you do not have agency, to do things like flush the toilet or set the shower, being able to, with your voice, say, mm. set the shower to 140 degrees is like having telekinesis. It's one yes. of the most dignifying, empowering things you could ever imagine. And doing it while for an average person is nonsense. For someone who needs mm -hmm. the ability to speak to their devices, something as simple as, uh, I want to listen to a given song on Spotify. Well, if you don't have use of your arms and your legs or your hands, that this is magic it's magic so we you know we all have to look at technology through the lenses that the various lenses and again this is the kind of stuff we do at ces for our clients it's like yeah we can i can make all the jokes you want about 140 degree showers and flushing toilets until somebody who's just come out of surgery needs to get the shower going until somebody who's been in a terrible traffic accident and no longer has the use of their arms needs to reach behind them and, and flush the toilet. Then this becomes a different technology. So, you know, we all, uh, again, you know, there, there are things that you have to look a little bit beyond and part mm -hmm. of our services at CES are to talk about what's new, what's next, what it means to your business. And more importantly, one, one filter, one filter only, Charlie. Technology is meaningless unless it changes the way we behave. And that's the filter. So if it's not going to be a behavior changing technology, we don't really talk about it very much. It's just, I will make fun of. That is that is funny because I sort of have learned the opposite or perhaps they're the same. You can analyze it for me. I have always felt like what technology needs to do is take what we're already doing and make it better. So if you look at, you look at Amazon, you look at email, all these huge changes in our behavior were driven by taking some obvious use case and just completely, uh, completely transforming it. So let before, before we jump in, uh, and we always do this in the show, right? We just jump into the meat of the topic. But I just want to have you describe how you became Shelley Palmer. Um, you know, you're a celebrity. You've got a staff. You put out all this content. You're talking about what you were doing 30 years ago in the 90s. Well, wait a second. Who are you and how did you do this? Because we've got a couple of thousand listeners leaning in and who want to know. Well, my mom met my dad. <laughs> that, not that far back, Shelly. Oh, my goodness. How did I become Shelly Palmer? I don't think I have a good answer for that. Although... 
my parents did meet at Juilliard and they became music educators and they couldn't afford childcare when they were both teaching in the New York City school system music in the Bedford-Stuyvesant uh, area. So they opened a little music studio to teach after school. And my very first memories were, were in that practice area where they were all their friends were teaching music lessons. I was uh, very lucky in the DNA club and got some good musical genes and started writing music at a very young age uh, and working at Dad's music store on Saturday afternoons. And then ultimately after school, my allowance was based on how many guitars I tuned and dusted <laughs> and uh, how, many, how many keyboard keys I cleaned uh, on the various pianos in the store and organs. And I, I became, a, you know, a, a pretty proficient young musician and ended up going to to film school at NYU. But instead of going into film full time, uh, I was lucky enough to meet Don Elliott, who at the time uh, was one of the most famous jazz musicians in the world and owned a jingle company, an advertising music <laughs> company. And I went to work for Don while I was still a senior at NYU. And it changed the trajectory of my career because I got to start writing music for television commercials immediately and news themes for television shows, uh, for, for news programs on television and sports shows and, and all whatnot. And and it was just the greatest education. I got to direct a little bit and produce a little bit too. Uh, when I started my own company, we, we were kind of a full service agency and production company. Early on, it became obvious that there was a lot of automation that was required. And I had been very deep into electronic music uh, as, a, as a kid. I, I, I got my Moog System 2E uh, serial number 002 and uh, Bob Moog brought it to my dad's music store in the back of his station wagon like I it was kind of a I was 12 years old it was just an insane moment in my life and the thing I did within a year was I, I figured out a way to to go to Radio Shack uh, get a Motorola 6502 processor a breadboard a bunch of VCFs and VCAs that were on ICs and uh, replace all of the analog circuitry that I could replace with uh, circuitry that I could um, use digitally to, so I could write patch locations to an audio cassette that was taking digital data. Like this was, this was my, <laughs> my 12 to 13 year old, like sci-fi project. And my, everybody else was building like thermometers, or whatever it was to do for science fair. For me, it was like, how do I uh, computer control my analog synthesizer? So it was a, a really kind of a instant love affair with technology and music. And so when I started to build my own studios, automation, super automation of every single process was important to me. And it will not surprise you to learn that the mathematics I learned uh, in high school and college are the same mathematics we use today. <laughs> and a fast Fourier transform has been around since I was a kid. And linear and logistical regressions have been around since I was a kid. And all of the smoothing algorithms that uh, we use today to to deal with data science, uh, all every algorithm for, from explore, exploit to, oh my goodness, every sort uh, algorithm you'd ever use, all these things have been around forever. And so my own journey into automating our music tools and our recording tools. And ultimately we put the very first tapeless recording studio, fully tapeless online in 1986. Well, and the first commercial we ever did with no tape and no mag stock was for BMW was for an editorial house uh, called first edition. The principal editor, there was Bobby Smallheiser and he 
was taking a giant chance. Normally you'd go, you'd, you'd, the sound editor would put everything on mag and then you'd go to national or someplace else and you'd put it up on dubbers and you'd mix. And he took a chance on us and let us mix completely digitally and lay it back to one inch and everything else after that in 1986, that was in April of 86. It was the first time any organization anywhere had ever done a tapeless audio mix for a on-air commercial. And it was an unbelievable moment in time. And everything from there just was whirlwind. We just built, built more and more tech and more and more tech. In 2000, the way I became the Shelley Palmer that, that you are talking to, <laughs> something crazy happened. The Walt Disney Company stealthily tried to buy a patent that I had written in 1993 for response-based television. It taught this concept of OCAP, the Open Cable Application Protocol, and it was specifically about uh, interacting with your computer and your television set in, in real time. So you could play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire uh, on your desktop computer in sync with what you were seeing on TV. Um, or or do your Monday night fantasy football in sync. And when when did you invent that? When is that patent from? Patent is from '93. It's uh, there. It's that one behind me. <laughs> and uh, it was reissued in 2011. A broadening reissue. The Disney Company bought it. M- most of it from me. They they bought 97 and a half percent of it in around 2000. And that's when I decided to close my production company and take a three year consulting deal with the Disney organization because the Imagineers are going to reduce my invention to practice. They were going to, and the first thing they did was Celebrity Mall Yucatan, and then they did Monday Night Football, and then they did Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and it was unbelievable to watch these guys like make this thing real. Um, And in order to figure out how to get this thing ubiquitous, I had been a member of the Emmy organization forever, ever, and ever. Uh, Since NYU Film School, I was a student member. And I decided that the best way to do to find out who knew how to do stuff was to build an Emmy contest that was peer reviewed because Emmy contests are peer reviewed. So um, I created for the Emmys, I was tech chair of the Emmy Awards and we created, I pitched and I got approved this thing called the Advanced Media Emmy Awards. And we we latched it on to, it started as a standalone contest, but then we latched it and combined it with the um, Technology Award, the Emmy Technology Award, which has been around forever. And we started doing uh, the award show at CES, which was really fun on the Thursday night of CES. And, but what the, the great thing, Charlie, that happened was everybody, like who knew who made the best grid guide? Who knew who made the best interactive environment? We're talking... We're talking 2000, 2001, two, three, four, five, like nothing. The smartphones don't exist yet. All right, we're still in BlackBerry world. Right. We're trying to figure out who makes UX and UI. The terms UX and UI didn't yet <laughs> exist. Like we were just, we didn't know anybody. Right. So we, the advanced media committee, our goal was who's in the business? Like, are you there? Who are you? Come and come and show us your stuff. Try to get an Emmy award. And everybody did, which was wonderful. So I got to meet pretty much everybody who was building anything that looked like interactive television or, or response-based television or something that would be cool. Uh, some, some way to interact with media. It was a really nascent, interesting and wonderful time. And I started writing some books and getting together with people. And it was just, it was far more interesting than the music business. And all of, I knew a lot about advertising because I'd sat, I'd written the music for at least by that time, 5,000 television commercials and probably directed another thousand of, on my own. So it's like, I, I kind of knew the business 
And it was a really nice way to mix the technology, which was a had become a super passion of mine. And the thing I knew the most about, which was advertising and marketing and, you know, <laughs> production, writing and directing and producing television commercials, music, video, what have you. So it was like all the things I love in one spot. So that's how it like every how did you go from composer to this? It's like it wasn't that far of a leap. I mean, it sounds like it if you don't know the like the path. But if you took the path, it's like one thing just led to another and it made great good sense at the time. Looking back, it looks like I designed it when I was doing it. It was like, what? Huh? Do I go left or right? I don't know. Like I, I was far less sure of myself on the way. Well, <laughs> Looking back, it looks way smarter than it it's, actually It's was. a, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a testament to the fact that you're a true entrepreneur and you pivoted toward where things were working and where your expertise was making a difference. And uh, so you started your own firm. How big is the firm now? Well, um, it's too big. That's first of all. All right. I'm um, not applying for a job then. <laughs> no, no, no. I tell you what, it's really interesting. Um, we have had many iterations and we really st- uh, th- started to thrive during COVID. I, it's embarrassing to say because we have we have been remote since 2000. So I, I never actually rebuilt. Well, that's not fully true. We had like a lot of WeWork offices for the engineers, which we now have less of because WeWork is kind of a little weird and people like to work from home. So yeah, uh, engineering teams are now working from home as much as they are. I think we have one or two WeWork um, facility uh, deals still going. But the firm uh, has, has a couple different groups. We have the engineering side, uh, which has which is sort of expand to fit the engineering work that we have. Uh, for our, our various clients, we've got a consulting practice, um, and then there's a production group, right? Events and events and production. So there's there's three groups. We are putting on a lot of events now. We're back. <laughs> obviously, not yeah. been able to do that during COVID. It was all virtual. Yeah. Um, and you know, we built a lot of facilities to do virtual events, and as you can kind of see, I'm pretty well lit, and I'm on a good camera, and it's like we do like that. Um, so the firm, the 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 when I say the firm is too big, uh, what I, and I'm being a little bit sarcastic. Yes, yeah. My 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 goal, my goal, is to um, get this to a place over the next few years, and and uh, let's say seek my next journey. And for me, that's going to I think I think. Don't hold me to this, Charlie, because it could be wrong. I could be wrong. You mean you might change your mind? <laughs> okay, I'm I'm reserving the right to change. Or circumstances may dictate that. You never know. You never know. Um, well, I actually I actually consider my personal best role father and grandfather. So that's my first thing that I do first. And when someone asks me what I do, I usually self describe that way. <laughs> I always take out my phone and start showing pictures of my granddaughter. Yeah, yeah, my I'm wife right. and my wife laughs at me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. You, <laughs> Right there. My goal is to sit on a few public boards and to continue my work at as the professor of advanced media in residence at the Newhouse School. We are just about to announce the Newhouse Advanced Media Lab, which will be a consortium of academia, corporate and um, government with the goal of tackling the world's most difficult communications problems, misinformation, AI bias and training social media uh, addiction and bullying, like the things that are really yeah. hard and have to be dealt with by f- policymakers and, you know, think tanks. Um, and 
and so that that is my ultimate goal to be able to to do the academic work and the think tank work and sit on some boards and continue my public speaking which i do a lot of as you know um but i reserve the right to change my mind because business is so fun right now it's crazy the ai stuff we're doing is so fun that i can't like i can't imagine not working 24 hours a day can't imagine i i love that you brought up ai uh, there are a couple of ways to talk about it, but I'm I'm going to stick with you, and and Jason, jump in anytime because Shelley is th- th- that was such an interesting interesting journey that you've had. We could have you on we could have you on this show talking just about that for the next hour. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you said, as I listened to you on stage last week, that we are in a generative era. And if you're good, AI is going to make you better. I've been dealing with this in a in a startup project that I'm involved with. People are terrified they're going to lose their jobs, but they don't understand that this is going to turn them into a superstar. If they are an expert and they learn how to use this tool, they can have superpowers. But it is amazing how many people are still terrified and resistant. Look, people can only perform according to their gifts. Um, the generative era is a kind of a separate concept that is worthy of discussion because we are no longer, human history is no longer written exclusively by humans and will never be again. Um, starting on November 30th, 2022, we had an assistant. Now, prior to that date, which is that that date is the date that ChatGPT became a a, a public uh, product, there were some generative AI writings on the internet that you could find. But for all intents and you know, narrative scientists had been doing some work for Bloomberg. So if you were looking at at financial reporting off of documents or sports reporting off of scores, some of that was written by machine. A lot of it was, but that's. That was child's play. And now, pretty much since what I would call, you know, the beginning of the generative era, when we just passed one GE this past November 30th, history is now written by humans and machines. And it's going to get crazy. This is uh, January of 24. In the last three weeks, Google, um, Microsoft, and Adobe have and OpenAI by by uh, their involvement with Microsoft have all announced that they're going to indemnify everyone against copyright infringement claims. So you have the largest companies in the world will will indemnify your writing. And in the last week, OpenAI created ChatGPT for Teams at twenty five dollars a seat, two seat minimum. So, and they are going to indemnify you against any copyright infringement claims for Dolly and or uh, GPT-4. And Microsoft in the last week has announced and made public the ability to buy one Microsoft Copilot license across a range of Copilot tools available. That was 300 seat minimum two weeks ago. So now anyone who wants it can take their Microsoft Office and turn it into a co-piloted office, which means that we are now firmly in a place where average writing is going to become the norm. Like the regression to the mean of eighth grade expository writing 
from Mr. Riley's English class is what you're going to start seeing. And that's going to be the best of it, unless you have subject matter expertise to change it by prompt crafting differently. So the the monocultural danger of this and, and the, the societal impact that this is going to have is a different discussion. It's going to be way deeper and it's more heady and it's more cerebral. And it really depends on how corporate America adopts these tools, because if every corporation, well, having every meeting meeting summarized that way and everybody who's this was this was my next question, because you have this unusual strategic insight into how companies are adopting technology. So it would be great to hear your um, reaction to what's going on in your insight. So we'll leave the the monoculturalism out of it for one second. And I want to just address your previous question. And I think they'll dovetail back together. So we do for the last year ish, uh, we've been doing a couple of different workshops. We've been doing leadership level sets, which kind of get all the leadership teams together. Uh, same words, good nomenclature, strategic understanding. So everybody's on the same page when it comes to talking strategy, and they can bring their own subject matter expertise to the conversations and decide, you know, what kind of uh, AI tools should be deployed, if any, and to to create value or unlock value inside their existing organizations or their databases. The other thing we do is this very baseline prompt crafting or prompt engineering workshop, and here you can make anybody five to 25% better at their job. Now, in practice, what we've learned is that's nonsense. Uh, Harvard University says it's a 40% improvement in productivity. And when I say better at the job, I really have to stop saying the word better. I really mean more productive. I don't mean better. You will be faster and more productive. You will not necessarily do a better job. You will do a faster, more productive job. But here's what's happened. In practice, People who are great, who have immense subject matter expertise, who really know how to frame a question, who know how to uh, create a data-driven question, who know what they're expecting back, and it's uh, they are looking for a quick response, shortcut ways to get to something they already could do, but are using automation to get to faster, these individuals get multiple times greater. I, I, it's hyperbole, you know, 10 times better, 100 times better. Someone who is great, who understands what they're doing inside any of these tools is going to get immensely better. You know, I put it a slightly different way. You have to, my experience, and Jason, chime in on this. My experience with ChatGPT is that it's most effective, not with general questions, but questions to which you partially know the answer. Because part of prompting, part of prompting is forcing it to think. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I could teach to, Yeah, to Shelley's point, which is if you are an expert, a subject matter expert, then, and, and you know what you're kind of expecting, and you're crafting the prompts in a way that gives you information in the format and the style that you want, then it helps you get there a lot faster. My own direct experience with ChatGTP is that I spend a lot of time in spreadsheets, and I love to manipulate data and do these complex things where I'm moving data between spreadsheets and all the rest. And I, as my co-pilot, ChatGTP, has made me 10x more, at least 10x more effective and being able to write all this additional Google app scripting to do all this automation around these spreadsheets that would have taken me, it would have taken me a month to do something that I was able to do in eight hours. It's Something incredible. so like you talk, you talk about Google Sheets and Google App Script. So you can't store a search in, in Google Sheets. You can't 
you know, if you do a complex search, you can't store it, but you can write an app script for it. How good are you at writing that app script? You don't need to be good at it at all. You just tell ChatGPT, here are the column names. I want this sorted by this, make me an app script. And then you you add a menu and you're done. It's like, what would it take in you 20 minutes if you don't do it every day, 20 minutes to go look for a tech note and go over to, you know, Stack Overflow and try and find, like, or GitHub, like none of that. Like you just ask it. So that kind of thing. If you're good, you're going to get great. If you're, so if you're great, you're going to get greater. If you're good, this five to 25% number is probably right. Harvard says it's 40%. These are the these are the individuals who are good at their job. They're not tech crazy. They're just good at their job. They're going to become five to 25. Harvard says 40% more productive. <coughs> Here's the most important part, Charlie. If you suck at your job, you're still going to suck. You just are. Like this doesn't make you good. It makes you more productive. So if you sucked, you're going to be a, you'll suck more. Like you will literally be more productive at sucking. And I, I people just don't get right. that. Like you, it's garbage in, garbage right. you out. Can't, you can't recognize a great work product. It, it's hard to create it. Dunning-Kruger lives in inside of ChatGPT for everybody who doesn't know what they're doing. The idea, oh, I'm going to write an ebook. It's like, on what subject? Oh, any subject. It's like, no, you're not. No, like, you're not. It's not what this tool does. It can't do it. In fact, it does it just really poorly to the point where Amazon now limits your ebook uploads to three a day because people are writing like 150 ebooks every day with ChatGPT that were terrible and you know going to be just like just clogging up the works. So on that side, on this productivity side, you you can become more productive. Now let's go to the other back to where we were, which is this very grave danger of of pure monoculturalism and the synthetic data being used to train more more models which no longer are trained on human output but now on combination human synthetic output you're going to get the equivalent of xeroxing a xerox of a xerox of a xerox until basically you can't recognize what it is and this is a giant danger it's it it actually is the kind of thing that would keep you up at night if you let it if you let it because if you let Microsoft Copilot summarize a meeting and then complete, not remember, it's an autocomplete. Like ChatGPT, uh, GPT four in its original format, GPT three, DaVinci three, it was a word calculator. So in the playground or in the API itself, you'd go man plus medicine equals, and it would say doctor. And sadly, the bias would be like woman plus medicine equals. You'd get nurse because that's the way the bias was. So it's an autocomplete. And if you, and if you, it's a great autocomplete, but it's just autocomplete. So if you imagine, and you've all, everybody's seen it, you're working on your iPhone uh, and you know, it's like, damn you autocomplete. It's been around <laughs> a long time, right? So, so this is just damn you autocomplete, but now it's full sentences and paragraphs. So you, all of a sudden it's writing the rest of your business email. Now your business email is not going to be that important, but if you want to do, if you want to do a really interesting trick just to see how crazy this is going to be. You gave the example a minute ago. So go ahead and ask ChatGPT, any version of it, doesn't matter, free version, paid version, Teams version, GPT-4, search the web, doesn't matter. Ask it something you don't know and, and see what happens. Then give it 
any example, two examples, it's called few shot prompting, two examples of the best proposal you've ever written for your business. That is one every time. Tell it, here's two examples, three examples of our best kind of proposal. I want to, I need to write a proposal for name the company, give it the stream of consciousness parameters. I mean, don't, you don't even need to prompt it. Well, you don't even need like nonsense parameters. This thing is going to write for you the tightest, most gorgeous proposal you've ever seen. And the reason is it has 1 trillion examples of proposals. But the thing you don't know about, like, how do I bake the best Girl Scout cookies in Cleveland and then, you know, sell them door to door? It's like, it, it'll go find some writing about that. But it doesn't have a, a hardcore, laid out, templated example of what, you know, overview, executive summary, you know, deliverables, which it's just seen a trillion times. So what it knows Man, it puts that stuff out like nobody's business and everyone's going to use it, Charlie. So all of a sudden, we're going to have the IKEA or the Apple store of proposals. Like that's what we're going to, that's what a proposal is going to look like. The way that every website looks like the same website no matter what, and when you don't see it that way, you get a little wigged out. You know, everything starts with file, edit, view. It's like everything in the upper left uh, of every app ever made for a desktop. Why? Well, that's the norm. That's the convention. Every commerce site looks like Shopify or or Amazon, or like everybody's copying one of about five templates for e-commerce sites. So will every proposal be in like one of five formats? And the answer is absolutely. Of course, who would not do that? A, they work, right? And B, ChatGPT can bang it out. So wait a minute. Now all my deliverables are going to be laid out in a very specific <laughs> way. And it's going to come to the point where if I don't see them laid out that way, I'm going to think there's something wrong with the proposal. <laughs> is that good or bad? I don't know the answer to that, but it doesn't feel like it's good. Right. When you go down to West Broadway in New York City, there are like all these little shops where these artists and artisans merchandise the shop. And, you know, it'll be like a semi art gallery, some kind of art installation. Then there'll be like a clothing store with, you know, small boutique style clothing. And each one is more interesting than the next. Then you go to Route 17 in Paramus, which is this amazing shopping, <laughs> yeah. you know, highway. And every, it's generica. It's like, it's, mm -hmm. you know, the same exact stores with the same exact stuff. The soul of our creativity is going to be ripped away if we let it. And so the, 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 it's not that you don't use these tools. It's that you have to maintain your own artistic uh, sensibilities. You have to maintain your, your own ethics, your own approach, your own vision. Because if you don't, this thing is guaranteed to give you the easy way out. So if you are looking to get done quick, it's going to get you there. <laughs> and then what? Yeah. Well, that's a whole debate, uh, debate going on in academia, as you know, uh, which is how much chat GPT is, um, is appropriate uh, for different tasks. And students have a hard time with that because it's so brand new. My position is get good at it and use it even when they say don't use it, because you are going to be exceeded by people who are figuring out how to use it. 100 over 100. Look, I teach, like I said, I teach at Newhouse. First three hours of class this semester with my master's students was how to use ChatGPT. Exactly. And now in February 6th, I'm teaching a seminar up at Syracuse 
called uh, Generative AI, Co-Teachers and Co-Students, A New Relationship. And the goal here <sighs> is to explain specifically how teachers can benefit and how students will benefit. I'm not, I, look, on ChatGPT came out November 30th, 2022, and the final papers for my master's students were, were due on um, December 6th of, of that year, 2022. <laughs> Every one of the students used it. Every single one. They they didn't know that they were supposed to. They just did it to like see if they could get, you know, get one by me. Right. <laughs> now, any teacher who knows their students, who's looked at their homework, who's for a whole semester is going to know the writing style of each student, just automatically pattern match it without trying to. It was very clear. Wait a minute. Now you've got a topic sentence that has a strong thesis, three supporting sentences, three supporting paragraphs and a conclusion. Since you don't know how to write that way. <laughs> This is clearly not your work. Yeah. So that was obvious. But this year, what I did was I just used the first, the whole first class and said, look, it, this is the tool set. This is your Google search. Right. Like when, when, when Google came out, every teacher's like, you have to go to the library. It's like, okay, <laughs> seriously, this is never going away. Why are you telling these kids they can't use Google in their academic exactly. research? Well, you, you have to use, um, you have to use large language models as a co-writer, as a, as a co-student, as because you're as a co-pilot, because that's the world you've been you're growing up in now. Yeah. You have to learn. You're 100 right. I think it's incumbent on every educator to start to understand the impact of um, AI on almost every subject and become an expert, so Absolutely. their students can understand that you have to have some expertise. You have to read some books in order to control the AI, because it needs again, it needs to be interrogated. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, it's it's not going to just do it based on your suggestion. Uh, it, By the way, it, it may never. There there are some areas where it won't do it no matter what you do. Oh yeah, I mean it's, true. it's just simple. One of the things that most people understand is that we we build external vector databases for our clients. We now uh, Chat GPT for Teams has a thirty two thousand uh, token context window which is pretty great. And if you're in the API version, you can get up to one hundred twenty eight thousand tokens, which is roughly. 120,000 tokens, about 300 pages of text. So you can put 300 pages of pre-prompting in the context window, which you can constrain the answer to. Then, you know, okay, so here's 300 pages <laughs> right. of the stuff I need you to think about. Right. Do not go outside of the corpus I've just given you. And then you're using the large language model for natural language access to your own data. And we do this for our clients that have mm. like SQL databases where, um, you know, everybody likes to make dashboards in the business world, right? Because that's like been a thing for years, make a dashboard. And so what we're doing for most of our clients now is if you wanted to talk to your dashboard using natural language, as opposed to calling the data office or, the, or, or a programmer inside your org and say, hey, I need the dashboard to do this or write me a report for that. So if you are able to look at a structured database and create um, queries where uh, Jason said, you know, it writes Google Apps Script. Well, it also does SQL queries. It also writes Python. It like it'll write anything. So if you've got good structured data, you literally can give a, a, a senior business leader who is by default a subject matter expert in what they do uh, access directly to speak to their data in natural language, which is fascinating 
Um, the only the only caveat is you can only ask a what question. And humans want to ask why questions because they're looking for a narrative. But if you can constrain your own brain into, let me ask, what's the last day I can sell a full price barbecue grill at store 17 mm -hmm. until I have to transship it, mark it down, or send it back to the manufacturer? And then you can replicate that against, I don't know, 20,000 SKUs. You're getting a hell of a Christmas bonus. You can't ask the data, hey, why did sales go down last quarter? Because that's not a question data can answer. But if you can break it into the what questions that you need, it's like, what happened with our blank blanks? What happened with our blank blanks? What happened here? What as long as you can couch the question into what, then you can build your own narrative and or not even need one. Just say, okay, look, we got to fix this. We got to fix this. We got to fix the next thing. But you can do it in natural language. This has been a massive shift, right? Because if you think about it, when you look at a dashboard, you got to call somebody in the data office or someone in, in, in your engineering team and say, I need you to fix the dashboard to do blank, or I need you to add this to the dashboard. That could take a couple hours or it could take a couple weeks. But if I can sit you down at a chat client in a chat window and all you got to do is talk, this is like massive, especially when it's a senior executive who really knows what they're asking. Yes. Right. It's like, this is where the subject matter expertise thing becomes absolutely right. real because it's not a game of telephone anymore. So we've seen the biggest value unlocks come from our um, clients where we've been allowed to go in, where they had decent data hygiene, decent data governance to begin with. And now we're adding this interesting natural language layer on top of it. LLMs are amazing for that. They're not so amazing if you don't have good data. Like it won't do anything, but if you can strain it, you can get really nice results. Really this. I want to kind of connect this maybe, Charlie, if you, if you don't mind. Please. We've talked about the idea that the, the power of ChatGTP really benefits those that have the most expertise to begin with. If we roll this back to this idea that we're trying to intersect these wearable technologies, these wearable AIs, this idea that we're going to have all these devices on our heads or around our heads that allow that sort of system to have additional content as part of the prompting, ultimately. How can we, or how is it possible, or is it ever possible, that generative AI really benefits kind of the average consumer wearing some sort of electronic device to give them that extra bit of context or, or output? So I, I think the answer to that is it won't be generative AI by itself, but I think it will be a series of stacked models. There will be a neural network in there or a convolutional neural network in there. They may be just straight up statistical machine learning or computation where you're stacking these models together and generative AI will provide the natural language understanding. And the neural network may be scoring and ranking based on and, and, and interpreting what it is you like and learning in real time. Remember, large language models do not learn in real time, right? GPT stands for generative pre-trained transformer. If you want the model to know something new, you either have to put it in the pre-prompt or you have to um, retrain the model. Whereas a neural network can interact in real time and learn unsupervised or supervised learning. So I think what you've just described is absolutely going to happen. In fact, I think I, I'm aware of at least a dozen projects where people are trying to do stuff like that. And um, I, I'm fully convinced that this is the future, that we are going to have some level of assistant. Look, Apple has been dead silent on this. It in either iOS 17 or 18, this has to be, there's enough compute, there's enough compute power in here to do anything. Now the question is, can they put a small LLM in there? Can they put a 7 billion parameter or a 30 billion parameter model in there that lives locally on your phone, that's totally private, where it just lives where you are, so you're not worried about anybody like 
getting creepy with you. And inside of Apple's privacy world, you now have like an Apple version of an assistant. They just priced Vision Pro. It's like five grand all yes. in with Apple, yes. all this yes. other stuff. So that's their, going to be their first gateway to visually understanding what's happening in the world. I think everybody should wait for the third or fourth iteration because five yeah. grand feels heavy and it's also going to be physically heavy. And, yeah, and it's not going to do that much. No. Well, it's going to help Apple understand how to get it down yes. to this size. Yeah, like, exactly. It needs to be this yes. in order for us to care about it. But yes. meanwhile, some version of the combination of the phone and, and, and something, I mean, Jason, that's 100% right. It's just a question of how the models will be stacked up and where they will they run locally? Will they run in the cloud? Some combination of both. If you're starting to rely on them, what how much of it has to run locally in case you don't have cloud access or wireless access? Because while living in New York, you kind of almost always have a signal. <laughs> you, you drive north of the city 50 miles and you got a 50, 50 right. shot, you're going to have connectivity. So if you're relying on a cloud-based model and you have no connectivity, nothing good's going to happen. So. Right. You know, we have a long way to go before this is, I, I, that's, you know, yes, all these things are going to happen. When? I can't get good 4G, forget 5G, I can't get 4G across America. Uh, I don't know, you know, how much of reliance I can have on anything that's cloud-based. But look, we also have supercomputers in our pockets. So what's that going to feel like? Yeah. I, I, and I think that's the future, right? Some version of a wearable that that is really mine, that... And that, you're going to get into a whole other combo now, Charlie, of data sovereignty. Mm. What yeah. data is mine? What data do I get to keep? How do I protect the data that I would want this thing to understand? Jason just brought up an important point. So is the streaming data from the environment, the passive data that I create, when I combine it with the active behavioral data I'm creating, when I put those things together, can a pre-prompt or can a prompt be formed automatically and will that be valuable to me? This is science fiction right oh, now. Yeah. But it's the future yeah. that's clear, but you tell me when. I don't get to say when. You get to say when, Charlie. So we're almost uh, out of time. Actually, we've gone over time. What I love about this conversation, Shelley, is the way you do this sort of porpoise dive from very uh, accessible uh, use cases and, and generally considered ideas. And then you dive into the tech and we go so deep. And then we pop out again at a consumer use case or business use case. So it's just really exciting to talk to you and, and get your unique perspective. Uh, I hope we have another opportunity. But thank you. Thank you so much. Jason McDowell of the AR Show podcast. Thank you for sitting in the co-pilot seat today. Uh, always great to hang out with you and um, and uh, share your uh, spectacular radio voice and your deep insight into this category. That's our show this week, everybody. Uh, have a great weekend, and I'll see you back here with Roni and Ted next Friday. 